0: What does the word intentional mean for you?
1: Intentional growth uh, means that you actually have a vision and a plan to execute on that vision, and you're not just uh, hacking at it. Welcome to Intentional Growth a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with
0: intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. I'm so excited and pumped for today's topic and guest because I get asked more times than I can count how intellectual property IP is handled in business valuations. And typically my response up until this conversation today, my response has been this, that intellectual property is monetized by the owner through creating more sustainable, predictable and transferable future cash flows as it relates to the financial valuation of the company. So if we're thinking about an asset, the whole point of an asset is to create future cash flows that are sustainable and intellectual property should be protecting that cash flow by protecting your intellectual property and keeping competitors away. And the other way to monetize your intellectual property is by selling it to a strategic buyer who wants to take that intellectual property and deploy it through their strategic plan, their distribution channel, products and services, and if you're going to sell the intellectual property to a strategic buyer, there's a good chance you can decouple that sale from the value or from the cash flow valuation if the buyer wants that IP enough. But there's a whole different you know, circumstance for that sale because of how and why the buyer wants that IP compared to a cash flow valuation. If the owner wanted to keep the operations, they have to monetize that IP through the cash flow valuation. And so it's really this binary choice. And this for the most part is how it works and this situation puts so many people in a bind the entrepreneur who wants to keep their operations and the cash flowing operations because they might like their job they might like their company they might like their community whatever it is they want to keep the operations but they also want to monetize their IP and the market value of that IP puts them in a bind because it's all conflated together and then there are investors who want to fund specific types of intellectual property that they love And they want to make sure that they are placing bets. So venture capital and private equity, these investors are placing bets on IP. But then if what they're doing is they're betting on that operations, that entity and the IP at the same time instead of just the IP. So then they're hoping that 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 company is going to take that IP fuel the capital behind it to get it to the point where it can be a unicorn and then start cash flowing. I mean, think about how uh, Tesla and Amazon these days are finally kicking out a bunch of cash decades later. However, th- it can be different now. And that is exactly what our guest today, Robert Cody, is going to be introducing. He is an intellectual industry titan with 25 years of IP experience under the- his belt, navigating the complex Uh, landscapes of IP entrepreneurship investors. And there are three reasons you definitely don't want to miss this episode. Robert is no ordinary entrepreneur. He started his career as an IP trial lawyer, advocating for innovative technologies from wireless communication to state-of-the-art electric motors. He breaks down the different types of IP, how to protect it, and why sharing it can make you more money than if you keep it secret. Super fascinating. The second reason is he's not just talk. He's actually walking the walk because he identified the transformative potential of IP and the current shortfalls in valuing and funding the IP in the ways I just described. He developed what he calls IP capital. It is so fascinating. This concept is a strategy that enables businesses, especially those in hardware and not just software, where a lot of the VC money has flowed to just software to maximize their intellectual assets, like I just mentioned, so the founders can get and the entrepreneurs can get rewarded. And then the third reason is that Robert has taken all of his experience and, and as the founder of CEO and uh, Cody Capital, where he continuously revolutionizes the investment models, prioritizing IP, fostering growth, and ensuring that entrepreneurs, all of us, maintain our fair share of equity and the stake in the game. And so today, Robert and I dive into the role of IP, how it should be handled by entrepreneurs and investors in order to release the creative vision of the American entrepreneur that this country was originally built on. For the last probably like 20 minutes of the conversation, we really dive into how it's actually important for this country to release the creative vision of entrepreneurs again, give them the capital tied to the IP, uh, and again, not just software other things too, specifically hardware. So if you're interested in IP, how to create IP, the types of IP, different ways to fund it, different ways to monetize it, this is an episode that you can't miss. Before we jump into the interview with Robert, I wanna make an offer for everybody listening. And if you're interested in that financial dashboard that I have mentioned in previous episodes where Arcona, our company, projects out the future value of a company, similar to how I show it in the Intention Growth Starter Kit, however, I'm just showing a spreadsheet in that starter kit, One of our offerings is is we help people build a custom roadmap to their valuation with their financials. And we offer a complimentary financial assessment, but it's necessary to schedule a discovery call prior to that complimentary assessment. So if you're interested, I would highly recommend going and checking out the Intention Girl Starter Kit where I walk through that case study and inside that starter kit, you have the option to schedule a discovery call and if that discovery call has a productive conversation and there's a high desire for both teams to move on to that complimentary assessment. We will give the person that goes through the assessment, even if there's not a fit, we'll give them access to the intentional growth Academy. So you'll walk away with an assessment as well as the Academy to continue diving in and learning more doing it yourself or giving uh, the material to your team so you can level up their skills or it could be a good fit and we could be working together. So, Go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit, schedule a discovery call, do the assessment if it makes sense, and then you get the Intentional Growth Academy complimentary. So I appreciate everybody for tuning in, and I really hope you enjoy this interview with Robert Cody. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, how do you know, and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right, thing when realistically you have the option to just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want But what we find is that most times, entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing in doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going. But we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or should I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment, because if you organize your financials in a certain way, and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials, and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner, and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the decision's clear today to say if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Robin, how are you? Very good. Nice to be on the show. I'm excited. Uh, you had reached out and uh, actually your agency. And uh, Krista's awesome, by the way. There's a lot of the podcast brokers out there, and most of them are not are worthless. And I love Krista. She brings amazing people. And so I listened and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so timely because about IP. And I was explaining to you, Robert, that every single time I do a keynote or a, a Vistage workshop, some people are like, how do you value IP and should we be thinking about IP? And then I just did a whole uh, podcast on AI and data security because it's out in the open. And I also care about IP because I've created a lot of it over the last nine years. So I was immediately excited and jumped all over it but it's not just IP you have this whole different funding strategy behind IP right. that we're going to get into too so for the listeners why don't you just give us like a 50,000 foot overview of your background robert and then we'll take the kind of the sequence of the topics that you and I walked over in that order
1: so 25 years ago i became a lawyer a trial lawyer in the ip space and i had the good fortune of representing companies that built industries in america that had fundamental technology, the wireless in your phone that makes the physical become digital, turns it into invisible waves of energy, and at the speed of light, it makes it around the world. Uh, amazing. We take it for granted, but if we think about what's going on, we realize- Kind of a big deal. <laughs> and and, and uh, so I had the good fortune of representing the company that developed that, the PCR techn- technology that you know today- uh, because you took the test, the COVID test, and that actually won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry to next-generation electric motors, to smart cards, semiconductors. So I like to say I played heavily uh, on the hardware side of the house and venture capitalists on the software side of the house. But I began my career helping these companies, many of them who either built industries or lost their opportunity. And usually the difference was in being smart about how you Uh, protect what you have early on. And believe it or not, the paradox is actually looking to license and share it so you can create value around the world uh, because otherwise people think about copying it and they will if it's got enough value or they try to come up with a better way, a better mousetrap, an independent development. And that's no good if you've put a lot of time and money in. So I did a lot of that and I used to cry over the young companies that literally, like it really uh, used to hit me Uh, that these young companies would lose their advantage because it's hard to get capital, hard to get venture capital for hardware. Ever since uh, we went digital with the internet and everything was, every business model was being digitized into a new startup, right? That would bring you that software solution.
0: Which is just a comment on that, Robert, Too, which is so fascinating too, because back, I can only imagine a couple of decades ago when it was all the VC capital was flowing towards hardware. I mean, like you needed five, 10, $30 million to spin up uh, a data center like you, in order to even launch your idea. So like now it's like the software is just for labor to code. It's just an interesting, like you need it now more than ever but it's all flowing towards software.
1: Exactly. And so these hardware companies uh, that built really built the empire, right? Uh, planes, trains and automobiles. We shared that technology around the world. I like to say the first empire in the world that didn't take the wealth of others Historically, that's how it worked, the land and resources. We actually innovated, created innovations that made it more productive to do everything. Software is a great one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, online, e-commerce, internet, uh, wireless connects the world with these smartphones. And now the world is your customer base, right? Eight billion mm-hmm. people. So wonderful innovations, but it all starts in hardware. Software is a great accelerant and productivity enhancer, but unless you have fundamental hardware to bring disruptive change, the software really will have limits in in what it can do. So venture capital, as you noted, has moved away because it is $100 million to build a chip, or $50 million to build a factory, a production line to make any kind of product, not just Mm -hmm. computer hardware. When I say hardware, I mean anything physical based on breakthrough innovation. So I went from the wireless to the PCR, the won the Nobel Prize, to electric motors, semiconductors. And what I saw was, Companies that shared number one, in some controlled way, they weren't just a charity, mm-hmm. optimize their business for where they had the manpower, the business plan and the capital that they could get from venture capital, uh, but then shared with others around the world, meaning one venture becomes many ventures in effect, right? Uh, other investors in other parts of the world with teams that can build that same new car with that IP engine, that great mm-hmm. engine, right? And so those guys would succeed. Qualcomm's a great example of that. Absolutely a great example. They made wireless voice more reliable than any other carrier carrier in the world, and they've reaped the benefits. They have a chip business, and they have a licensing business. You have to license the use of your phone with their chip. uh, But they enable so many companies to build businesses and create jobs. PCR, same thing. Wireless, same thing. So I realize there's a giant hole In these markets. Um, And I took my IP capital model, which looks at the IP as a property, like real property, but I know it's not fixed in one place. It can create value wherever it goes. And realized I could take one venture and turn it into many, build the top line faster, grow the business faster, have more impact in the world, jobs and depending on the tech for humanity in other ways, energy, housing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I could de-risk the business. Now I'm not betting on just one team, right? I've got many bets placed. Mm,
0: And so venture
1: capital has moved to software where they do those many bets across unique ventures and they value the venture, not the IP, right? And they have a valuation model that works for software where capital is light, early revenue, the valuation can be low, But the capital need isn't so high that you're taking away most of the equity. Move to hardware, as you said, and I've got a lot of CapEx that I've got to invest to build a product. In early revenue, I've got a challenge because I can't get that venture-like value. Mm -hmm. And they ignore the IP value. And that results in an inability for hardware companies to grow and thrive. So I created IP capital, which is... Venture capital that values the venture and the IP and looks to scale the use of that IP, Many one venture becomes many, as a way to solve a lot of, the, of this problem that was standing in the way of these companies growing because you and I want to bring our manufacturing base. It's a national security risk here in the United States. It's also a way to create lots and lots of jobs that software does not. And so I realized that it's hard for venture capital building 10-year funds to just shift gears back to hardware, which is where the industry began, right? The empire began, the venture capital industry began. And so it really needs a new model and somebody to spearhead it. We call it IP capital. But again, it's a new kind of venture capital. We value the venture as well as the IP. We don't ignore that. And that's how we get around this problem of taking way too much equity for the entrepreneur.
0: I love it. I love it. I love it so much. I'm so excited because, um, and we're going to unpack this so that way by the end yep. of this conversation, I hope that the listeners in and tuning in will understand the difference of your IP capital compared to the VC capital and like how yep. it's going to be in, influential. Because I, I also think, you know, I'll say this again, kind of put a pin in this, but like right. with, the, with the music that kind of stopped this last 18 months, Robert, I mean, the, the companies. That were VC backed, and I've got family members working for VC backed companies, where it's like you missed you missed it. It's kind of like all I want to say is you missed it. But like so now, it's like to shift the model to like you're gonna go for a cash flow valuation is like almost ludicrous thinking. Yeah. Be, but there's IP in there, so let's put that aside because I think you and the model and how you are approaching this is very intriguing. But let's start. I, and not to be too basic, but I want to get us right. all on the sa- same level of playing field for terms, concepts. Let's talk about the different types of IP. Sure. What, are, what should people be thinking about when we're talking about IP?
1: So I try to um, dispel a misconception. And um, that is sometimes people can think of the IP rights that protect your technology as the IP. In the legal world, mm-hmm. it's often used synonymously, but it's really the IP is the technology. When we think about and hear about China stealing our IP, we're talking about the technology. We're not talking about the patents or the trade secrets. Well, those are rights legally that protect you. Mm -hmm. But it's the technology that um, we're talking about. And now you're investing in in disruptive technology, breakthrough innovation that changes the way we make a physical product instead of uh, bits. It's atoms, right, is uh, a cute way to think about it. Mm-hmm. a software, it's hardware. Instead of digital, it's physical. And so when you venture out into the world with something breakthrough and you recognize there are 8 billion people in the world and to keep it in your pocket, build your corporate stores, because that's all you have capital to do, uh, typically if you can get venture capital, because it's so expensive and so dilutive of your equity, if you can get that capital, now you've got to think about how do, how, do, how do you protect if you're going to go out into the world and actually scale, turn that one venture into many, license, franchise, how do you protect? And that's where you think about patent rights. We call mm-hmm. that IPR, trade secrets. How do you make sure you're you're going to be able to have different aspects of not only the breakthrough innovation, but the innovations that cascade along and how to manufacture it. it. could be new equipment to make it. There's mm-hmm. a lot of follow-on innovation from a plane, a train, or an automobile to actually go make that plane, train, and automobile. And then you have to think about how do I protect it? Do I keep it secret, a trade secret? And what do I need to do to maintain that secrecy, right? One of and course- would that be
0: like a Coca-Cola recipe?
1: Correct, and I like to tell people, even a Warren Buffett is an IP investor and people don't realize it. He bets on companies that may not have a technology advantage but they have a process IP advantage. They can deliver a product more efficiently. And in the case of Coca-Cola, I call it a process or a recipe for making Coca-Cola. One of his, he'll tell you, he rode the American tailwinds. Innovate here, spread it around the world. That's what I'm talking about. He was an IP capitalist, if you wanted to call him that. And he realized I could take that Coca-Cola recipe when I bought Coca-Cola I could go around the world and depending on the foods you eat, it changes the taste of the Coca-Cola here in other countries. So they tweaked and adjusted the recipe and there are different recipes for different parts of the world. No and joke. I didn't scale. know
0: that. That's why it actually tastes yeah. different. Now, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs>
1: now the question is how do you keep it secret, right? And yeah. so that's one one way. Now, you always keep things secret if you believe that you can keep them secret um, because you want to have a good five-year run to reap the benefits for your investors uh, because it takes that long for a real fundamental technology, once it's been proven to work and you're beginning to enter the market to really get traction, you know, people don't like change. And so when you bring something new, no matter how valuable it is, it will take a uh, You know, some time for it to gain traction, to hit that tipping point where Mm -hmm. it will go viral. So, you want that longevity. And if you feel that um, keeping it secret will be a challenge, and there are all different reasons why that uh, might be the case, and you believe somebody can get access to your product, uh, whether illegally or legally, they can go buy it on the shelf, right? And reverse engineer what you're doing. And they can do it pretty quickly. Software struggles because it's so easy to replicate. Software it tends to be more incremental. That's mm-hmm. why VCs ch- are challenged today, and returns for investors. That's why Silicon Valley Bank was on the throes of disaster a few months ago. The model is too crowded with too many people chasing too few good deals in an incremental world where it's easy to copy, replicate. Not and just t- would copy, you also but say replicate. too few
0: ideas, Robert? Like when I was watching your clip on, uh, I can't remember which news clip it was, but you were saying that like I couldn't, re- I, I resonated so much. We're like, I mean, Uber Eats, we're still just getting food delivery. Uber is still just a cab. Like, like it's not like we're doing things really that differently. There's things that are more convenient incrementally, to your point. And they took
1: advantage of hardware inventions, wireless in your phone, <laughs> right, right, wow. with satellites, right. Those are all hardware inventions that now made it possible to. Automate that business model, like you said.
0: Delivering you know like, would you agree? Would you agree or disagree with this? Because I think the software that went in, and like really, what like the, a lot of these platform, these software platforms were doing, were taking advantage of this through the digital communication and all the IP you talked about. They took the advantage of a mismatch of a supply and demand, where like there was a lot of supply of people's empty cars and a big demand, and poof, now you got the supply and demand that's more. E- like matched, but the the good or service is still there. Right. And
1: and the point is you hit it on the head. Um, Anytime you can automate something in software, you and bring enough of a value prop for people, make it easier for people to connect and to consume, whether it's a mismatch between supply and demand, as you've described, which it is. Um, It's like ZocDoc for um, uh, doctors in New York. You just plug it in, you can figure out who's available. That's hard to do in some cities, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to wait weeks to get a doctor. So automating through software is a wonderful tool, but if you're investing in it, even the best company can be usurped, beaten out, because there'll be many, uh, where there's McDonald's, there'll be many customers, Burger King, Wendy's, I like to use as a cute example. So mm-hmm. too few good ideas uh, probably is, isn't is that there aren't plenty of ideas for how to automate everything we do today as a business or a consumer. Many, many ideas, but too few breakthrough ideas. Because when it's incremental, as an investor, you're challenged in that competition can show up and eat your lunch. When -hmm. you're in the world of physical technologies that are based on deep science and engineering, they tend to take years to develop, long development cycles, and take uh, lots of capital. And so it's hard
0: for people to just simply catch up
1: right? In a mm-hmm. year. Oh, Two if year, if
0: years. Yeah. And like all the books that I've read, Robert, about like, you know, all Walter's Walter Isaacson's books about the code breaker, about the mRNA technology and anything in the biotech right. and sciences. It's like, the, if you like from an outsider, just listening or watching the amount of fights between the people that invented the technology to the investors around the patents, because of exactly what you're talking about. It's like, no, this took us 30 years to develop. I'm not just going to give up right now. <laughs> It, it,
1: exactly. So I got in the, in the, in the business because I saw Venture moving away from uh, hardware investments. That's where I was helping young lawyers when I was an IP lawyer. I was actually an investor, but I was helping them license their tech. Many companies who had developed fundamental technologies that created industries couldn't survive in a sea of uh, large companies. Big Oak, Shade, everything. Um, it's, in their, you know, their, it's in their DNA to maintain the good that they have. And they often will look at what you're doing and do it themselves. They've got more capital, manpower to really execute where you can't. And so, with VCs moving away and manufacturing going overseas, it became more and more difficult for a hardware company, a physical product company, to survive in, in the U.S. market. And that's a, you know, that's a challenge. So I came in and saw that many of them were being stolen from. I couldn't help them. And I thought instead of coming in on the back end and trying to help them and their investors reap some benefit from all of the risk and capital over mm-hmm. usually a decade of its breakthrough before you hit the market and the market takes off, I thought I need to get in the game. I've heard their complaints. I've heard their concerns. Come in with a better model that doesn't dilute the equity of the entrepreneur that values the IP, not just the venture, right? Which is one of Mm -hmm. the ways to skin that cat, and then shares in revenues because if they have enough of an advantage, they'll have a contract base and enough durability in that advantage that you can now move to a real property like investment style where you're sharing in revenues, at least some minimum dividend to get paid to wait. You're no longer forcing them to exit prematurely, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, either an IPO or a sale because you're a venture capital fund and the 10 years is up and it's, you know, in or out uh, or you won't get the next fund. So I give them the luxury of being able to build that business and take it wherever they want it to go, knowing I'm getting a minimum dividend along the way and watching the equity, much less equity than a venture capitalist would take grow in value. So the entrepreneur now has that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow with my model, investors now have a piece of the action, so to speak, a dividend along the way, right? Mm -hmm. And they are, you know, not wedded to the timing of any particular exit. Mm -hmm. And for everybody, both the entrepreneur, and we'll break this down, and the investor, looking at the venture as not just a venture with a team and a business plan, but a brand new engine or a brand new uh, piece of hardware that nobody else has that delivers value you can't get. Like Nvidia's GPUs, nobody can get GPUs that can do what they can do. The world is waiting for production because they all have got their AI ready to run on those GPUs. So the point is you've got durability, you've got a breakthrough that gives you an advantage nobody else has. That becomes a risk mitigator to that business unlike in software, right? You're not worried about competition, number one. Number two, you've got a backstop on your investment. We hold the assets as collateral if the business were to fail, as opposed to just assuming we're zeroing out and tolerating lots of losses like in a venture model. So I create more of a a real property model where the property generates rents from use of the property. Here it's use of the IP, flows to investors, some minimum dividend, so you're paid to wait. The property is valuable enough when valued and you look at its liquidation path to protect you from the downside. And then I'm helping these guys think about the 8 billion people in the world they can deliver value to. And instead of building corporate stores and keeping that diamond in their pocket, sharing it through licensing joint ventures, creating many ventures from one I'm building the top line and I'm further reducing the risk.
0: Yeah. And you're building an ecosystem that like, I mean, I don't know if this is too cliche, but I mean, it's the app, Apple store, right? I mean, like you have all these people building apps that are all making money or Amazon. I mean, my God, I've got some exposure, Robert, into the online space, the Amazon yeah. FBA aggregators that were just buying these. I mean, the, right. all of that market is because of Amazon to your whole point, right? right? right. Like that, none right. of that would have been around. So if you have an ecosystem that is back to your point about Warren Buffett being an IP capitalist. It's the moat he's always talking about. And Robert, this yes. is why, why I say it. it correlates so much with our philosophy because of intentional growth by creating an asset. I mean, it's about the reality of creating future sustainable cash flows.
1: That's Correct. the whole Correct.
0: point. And it's this whole thing that we need to create equity value based on future cash flows. And what you're doing is you're allowing the probability to like the, the economics to be matched up with actually launching the product or service instead of just being a financial engineer. Correct, correct. And so in
1: venture capital, when you lose true innovation as your advantage, then you have to financially engineer growth. That could be blitzscaling the company. So you take market share because you're, you've got pools of capital at different stages so you can accelerate the path of your startup versus the other startups that only have early stage investors and need to find that next stage, right? So you can win- just because you've got the vertical model to take them from farm to table, from soup to nuts, right? Mm -hmm. And that is how they grow. They're being attacked in the press for predatory pricing strategies. I saw some articles on that. And it's not that venture capital isn't doing the world a great service, they are, but they're too focused on software and they're struggling as an asset class. Mm -hmm. The ones that have verticalized are doing fine, The many that have not, who are niche because when you're in a crowded field, what do you do? You specialize. And when you specialize, mm-hmm. there's too many people trying to chase too few good deals. I like to say that really have an advantage and valuations go up. Irrational valuations have we seen with Uber and other companies when they go public. Right.
0: Oh, and then, and then, yeah, we work, uh, case in point, right? Yeah. We work
1: is a great one. Yeah. Well, and I think
0: it, so. Okay. Um, very, very, I love it. So let's go back to so when I think about valuations, I'll I'll kind of explain how I describe this in my conversations, and you can kind of mm-hmm. take that and and lift off of it. It's like so when I when people I always ask me, Robert, like how do how does IP get valued in a deal? Because then I want to talk about, after we talk about this, I think we talk about then how do people create IP? How do they spot it? Then what do Mm -hmm. they do about it? Because Mm -hmm. I think this is something that everybody can act upon and not just the software companies like you have uh, proven, which I love. So so what I always say, Robert, is like, because like intentional growth, when we talk about viewing a company as an asset, these are founders that are not backed by VC or PE. So this mindset of an asset is not like ingrained right off the bat. It's like, they found an opportunity or product or niche, and they've built a sustainable business off it. But now we're trying to help them say, Hey, this thing is like play the game that everybody else is playing like private equity, venture capital to understand how to grow value. So that this, I help people try to understand valuations by a simple thought process, Robert, that is like the intrinsic financial value. Is the value of your asset based on the risk of the future cash flows right, as it stands right. today? Right. So when people are like, well, right. I've got IP. So like, but when I'm explaining to someone, I'm like, hey, let's say you're doing, just make a, uh, a dramatic example, like five million in revenue and a five hundred grand in cash flow. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, I've got IP that's worth thirty million dollars. I'm like, but the cash flow right. valuation, you're still only making five hundred grand. <laughs> like at the end of the day, that company is only making right. five hundred grand. From the cash flow financial valuation, if someone wants to buy that IEP for thirty million dollars, right. they're buying IP, not your business. That's a cash flowing asset. So what I was explaining is like the IEP has to be facilitating the generation of cash flow. More cash more, flows,
1: right? More more exactly,
0: cash <laughs> right. more cash flows. Or because my, my the whole philosophy, Robert, is that if they, if the people listening in that to this philosophy, they can have as many choices without other people as they possibly can have. But if they right. need the money and they don't have enough time or capital, they're going to have to sacrifice the operations potentially to sell the IP to get right. the valuation that they want. Right. So it's more this like strategic, like you're someone else is going to be grabbing that IP for their strategy instead of you and your strategy. Right. So, so I think, that is a, how do you feel yeah, about that? that yeah. yeah no,
1: I, I think, um, I think you hit it on the head in the end, cash is king. Cash flow, as opposed to accrual, is tells you the truth, right? It's <laughs> reality. And so with an asset, uh, a new engine in a car, right, there are people around the world who can build cars, right? So why do I want to build my own factories, make my own cars, and not license others to build cars? I can grow my business more quickly. Now, you can make a choice. Tesla's done it, right, to build their own factories, right? Or you can share, and you need to make that choice. Apple made the
0: choice to say proprietary. And isn't isn't Elon and Tesla now licensing their road charging machine to Ford and the GM? They
1: are, right. And that's, like you said, to build the ecosystem. So everybody's using the charging system so you can scale that much more quickly, right? And it helps Tesla, Right. Create value for others, you create value for yourself. People don't realize the more value I create for others, the more value I create for myself. And if I stay in a market of 300 million, conscious capitalism, (laughs) uh, and I don't realize there are 8 billion people I can deliver value to in the world, it's a fool's move to keep that diamond in my pocket. A fool's move. Totally
0: agree. I love it. And
1: and then just to hit your IP point, it is about cash flow. So if you take what I've described... That IP will create cash flows through many other ventures, right? Through licensing, could be joint ventures. It really depends on the technology, how much assistance the, how much assistance these companies in other parts of the world need. It may be a joint venture or a pure license, like a franchise, like building Starbucks around around the world. But you're now going to value that asset based on its potential to create cash flows beyond the venture. The venture is always, if I just did my IP valuation on the cash flows the venture is going to create, well, it's not going to be any different. But if I could think of the property like a piece of real property, but instead of being fixed in one place with only so many units that can generate rent, right, that's like the venture. It's limited to the team and the business plan and what they can do with the capital they have. But if I realize that property here, the intellectual property of the tech can move and create value everywhere in other ventures, now we're talking about something, right? We're talking about many other cash flow streams and that's how you get real value for IP that makes so, a difference for
0: a venture. I love it. Let's Let's take, before we go into like how we share it without sabotaging the work that we've done and to get to the point that you're talking about. So let's take current companies that like, and I think that this is what for the listeners that are in, they have a current company for the most part. Right. Is that someone that might have a cash flowing valuation that is not as high as what their IP might be, like, like, there are different strategies, someone will say, like, hey, take that IP and create an entity to protect it. Like, so what would be your thought about like, hey, a manufacturer or some professional services firm, or whoever has got a, you know, a good business, like a sustainable business, that's not just right. a VC burning cash, like they're a sustainable business, but they have this thing that this IP, how do you approach that to get the options that you're talking about?
1: Well, um, and you may have to ask uh, maybe maybe your question again, but 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 I, but basically, any company that has something that creates value, that IP can be packaged up just like a or packages up its brand and its know-how on how to build the store, how to bring customers into the store. Well, you know, on the physical side of the house, hardware, the either the cost to make that. And a lot of these companies are now in the circular economy, reuse the waste Mm -hmm. or reducing carbon emissions, et cetera. People will pay a premium for it or that hardware can deliver value. You can do more work per unit of of time. So these technologies, anything that creates enough value to be breakthrough, um, you essentially want to help that manufacturer realized that with the right strategy of licensing and franchising and packaging up that IP, um, you essentially can bring the manual and the parts and show them how to get in the business, and probably you're going to make some of the critical ingredients in your corporate stores so that you're not giving away the farm, right? So it's Mm -hmm. one of the protective mechanisms that you want to practice. And those will change, but that's how I look at at it. And what you will typically do is you will hold the intellectual property rights to using the technology in a separate entity owned by the manufacturer, and you'll create a licensing of the technology with support from the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. That's one way to do it. And now you're getting a toll on revenue, just a simple licensing fee like a bridge or road or tunnel gets built today, it's a toll on revenue typically it's the mm-hmm. way they get mm-hmm. returns. Or you can enter into a joint venture, right? Because they need much more support, right? Capital maybe, and they need you along uh, to get this thing up off the ground, uh, this manufacturing line or facility. And there you'll be sharing both in a royalty from the use of your IP plus a share of the profits. And that profit split will depend on
0: what people are yeah.
1: contributing, what the risk profile is, uh, many different factors will determine how you split that.
0: Got it. And what I think regardless of what direction, whether someone were to like, you know, bring on an investor that's an IP capital uh, investor like yourself, or they just keep it as is waiting for options, maybe they get a knockdown on the door for an out-of-the-blue offer, but no matter what, structuring it like that. I think gives people options to explore and wait for things to kind of happen to figure out which d- direction to go. Is that a safe? Yeah, yeah.
1: And it gives you optionality. You now have a, um, a separate, you own the thing. It doesn't matter whether the assets on paper, because physically there's kind of like all these capital backs, right? The equipment never leaves the factory, but somebody on paper owns it, right? Mm-hmm. So you're really setting up an entity that on paper owns all of the rights to the technology, but the physical technology, other than a copy of it that's held, you know, as security if if there's a funding, uh, uh, IP capital funding or just a pure debt funding. Uh, the uh, but the physical assets themselves, the know-how. Uh, the technology, the designs to make the equipment, to make a product, the designs for the product that make it do something new and different—all that's still sitting in the factory, right? Effectively, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so um, the world treats American IP, in particular, as a very valuable asset. We don't people don't realize that, and if you go around the world, you'll find that your IP assets when licensed, those revenue streams are taxed at half or less of corporate profits. So there's also a tax advantage in thinking about your IP assets as
0: a standalone asset pool. Super interesting. And so I think that that, that last part of the conversation that we just went over is good context to go back to when you had said you had separated the venture from the IP. You want to just re-go over that again, because I think it's crucial, because I think it's that, what we just went through, I think cements that.
1: So you separate the venture from the IP, both conceptually, in that you don't look at the venture as a venture along with a team and a business plan. You look at the technology as a property asset that is equally valuable, right? Mm -hmm. And if breakthrough truly valuable and should be licensed, some cases not you'll choose how you license you'll profit optimize the ventures business and where you know you don't have the time the money or the appetite for risk why not license it if you can do it in a way that protects what you have you've got more cash flow streams coming as Mm -hmm. you've described Mm -hmm. cash flow is king right and and so but in terms of actually separating them legally it is usually wise to have ownership held by a wholly owned subsidiary that holds the IP. and the way you get paid is like uh, rent on a real property. you get a share of the you get a share of the revenues from use of the property, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to do that because you still own it. it's still your holding company. but your tax obligations on those streams because we want to encourage you to share that IP is half or less of what you will be charged on profits. If you're just building a corporate store, just thinking of this as a venture, and um, you're doing the business a disservice in just investing in the venture and ignoring the value and the fact that that asset is not fixed in one location and can create cash flows wherever it goes
0: And. For others make the biggest impact on the 8 billion people like you've been talking about too like if you think about just store by store by store if starbucks would have just went there, i think it's such a fascinating set right. uh setup that you've got because instead of just the cash flow valuation you had the le- the rent and the usage so you have two and is this a fair how 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 accurate do you think this statement is like if i go back to like let's say you got a million dollars in cash flow you say okay well here's the cash flow valuation. you take it times by seven let's say it's seven million dollar valuation on the venture. But now you got IP over here that's got a cash flow valuation potentially too from the licensing of the the mothership.
1: Let's say there's 10 more of those seven million dollar streams, right? Now you've got 77 million dollars of value for that business that in a venture model would only look like seven. And if you need seven million, there goes half the company, right? Versus right. seventy-seven million, you're only giving away 10% of the company.
0: Yeah, and I'm assuming like it also creates so much flexibility too with potential acquirers. It's like do you want the cash flow valuation, do you want both? Because both is a higher multiple with a whole different deal structure versus just the IP. Because then I right. you could still like is it? I mean, do you see this too, where someone sells the IP and then actually just continues the license and then they keep their cash flow valuation and their, their cash flowing entity just as they have been?
1: Yes, I mean um, I'm trying to think uh, of a good example for you. Uh, I mean, the music industry, that's how artists get compensated. They just license somebody else, distribute, sells, et cetera, and they get a toll on revenue. They don't actually do anything beyond create the song, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or Qualcomm's a great example. They don't make the chip. They design the chip. They're an IP company, really, at heart. ARM, uh, the processor in phones, the low-cost, low-energy processor. Oh, Marriott. Phone, does it? Doesn't Marriott, Marriott like, is it? a soft? I call it a soft IP. Now you're in the world of process, right? Brand and delivering a service better than somebody else, right? Because better, they like, okay. don't
0: own like any real estate, right? They don't.
1: They let that, well, yeah. they probably own their corporate stores, but right. there are many, many more franchisees, and they realize that uh, getting a toll on revenue has very little cost to it and lots and lots of profit to it versus building a building a factory and doing it all yourself or mm-hmm. building every hotel and doing it yourself or a lot of capex in that.
0: So let's go to then um, when people are looking to uh, cause a lot of our concept is like, what do you want out of this? So that you, I mean, you could scale pretty, you know, you could scale with your IP, you could keep your business. I mean, again, we're kind of laying out the different options here. Yep. Let's say they're going to want to sell their IP or sell their business or anything or their IP. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, and we can f- figure it if we want to inverse these topics, but I'm thinking about the the risk of due diligence or having conversations with potential acquirers around IP. And like, I had a very, uh, 10 years ago, Robert, almost um, when my father and I sold our company, we sold it to a strategic buyer that right. like the customer list was our IP, but also then there was all this managed IT offering like with processes, it's all IP, right? Yeah, it's all no. IP. And, and no. so like, we already, like when we we're in the deal, like, People started chatting. We're like, they're talking. You know what I mean? So like, there's the risk of getting your IP stolen, especially when you talk about software. People doing code due diligence. So how do you, when you're selling or looking to sell, protect your IP in that process? And then we can talk about in general as you're scaling, scaling the ecosystem or sharing.
1: Well, you have a you have a challenge when you're entering into an MA with somebody, right? Um, because You can have an NDA in place, uh, but I think that you you go through that process in stages. Um, The business has an outward, just like when the body is not feeling well, it outwardly shows things, right? And a successful business will have customers, it will have revenues, it will have profits, and that's what's attracting you to buy the business, as well as the technology that enables that. Now, the question is, is... You really want to get to close to the finish line with anybody before you let the keys to the kingdom outside your hands. And you want to try to make sure uh, that it's pretty challenging to back away from the deal that's been inked, at least in a term sheet, uh, because you are at risk if you share it. Uh, What's in the mind is hard to separate, even though there's an agreement that says I shall not use it. Right? Challenging to produce. To prove it, and people will come up with all creative ways to capture the essence once they know the secret sauce, and then literally maybe not even capture the true secret sauce. Do a flavor of it. Now you're in the world of is it the same or simil- similar, and uh, and should I be compensated for that? You know, act of mm-hmm. that right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and it's often challenging to prove somebody copied it. Mm-hmm. Uh, very very challenging, and you know, law, young startups who go to raise money, really run into this problem. Uh, they do lots of meetings. They think the world is like the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come, and they go and they share. their genius. to
0: like 100 people, people and yeah.
1: <laughs> and next thing you know, and I've seen this in my earlier life as an IP a, a lawyer, trial lawyer, protecting companies that built industries who did not reap the benefit of their technology because it was so easy, especially in the hardware side. Once that big company that's already got fabrication facilities, manpower, lots of money, once they know how to make that product, right, what that tech is, what the secret sauce is, it's going to be hard to catch up. And there's a mantra in the big company world that um, has become commonplace. It's called efficient infringement. David is unlikely to take on Goliath because it's the sport of kings to afford to be able to do so. And even if he does, the system has changed over the past 10 years since the, quote, American Vents Act. It's kind of an oxymoron uh, that makes it easy for somebody to come back over and over again to the patent office and say, hey, these patent rights uh, should be relooked at. I've I believe they're invalid and delay that process. So even if David could find the money and the great lawyers to go ahead and take on Goliath, he has to worry about the time that it takes to get his uh, day of reckoning could be too long. He can be irreparably harmed. He is out of the business. And so that's one of the challenges. And so protection goes, of, of when you're an IP capital investor, that moat, That Warren Buffett talks about. It can be through long development timelines. It can be through large capital. It takes years to catch up. Intellectual property rights, patents, trade secrets. There are different ways to do it. And you have to protect that asset if you really want to reap the benefit. There's too many people that are economically advantaged that um, it's hard to uh, to stop uh, what might happen.
0: I hope you're enjoying the interview with Robert. I wanted to do a small interruption in order to let you know that if you're fascinated with this concept of intellectual property and how it's valued... The best way to better understand this is to better understand valuations and the two main types that we talk about in the Intentional Growth Academy, which is one, the cash flow valuation, which we talk about the intrinsic financial value and by de-risking that future cash flow compared to the strategic transaction, which is when a buyer wants to come in and buy your company for a specific reason, aka your intellectual property. And I really dive into multiples and EBITDA on both of those different types of valuations. And I think that that would complement our discussion around how IP capital fits into what we talk about in the Academy. So go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit or jump right into the Intentional Growth Academy. It's $1,500 for the do-it-yourself. Or if you reach out and schedule a discovery call and you're interested in a, a complimentary financial assessment for your company, we will actually give you the Intentional Growth Academy access for free. So I appreciate you tuning in, and I really hope that you enjoy the rest of this interview with Robert Cody on intellectual property and IP Capital. I love it. I love how you actually broke down the different ways to protect that moat, Robert, because it's, everything that you're talking about is enhancing what we talk about, creating future sustainable cash flows. And like, it's so, like, I'm curious, um, mind. I'm gonna. I don't want to digress too far. Um, I want to move on to like how people can create this ecosystem. So we talked about mergers and acquisitions and you obviously have a buyer that needs to see the IP if they're going to write a huge check for it. But over here of scaling with your IP and licensing it to other people. I mean, you, what caught my eye is you said the, the easiest way to protect your IP is to share. It was one of the cut sheets that you'd sent there. I'm like, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah, it is. It isn't. Yeah. And so walk us through how someone would roll that out we, we gave a couple great examples but with the level of stages you talked about when you're selling like how do you kind of approach that that you don't get yourself in trouble
1: well you you know on the A side it's it's more challenging than on the licensing side actually mm-hmm. but you want you want to have different levels of protection you want physical i'll call it the lock and key you know how do you control access technology A.I. and I.O.T. on your lines that will know whose finger or hand was in the cookie jar. Right. Mm-hmm. Cute about it. And then you want legal protections, which are patents, trade secrets, and you want sophisticated counsel who understands how to take advantage of the legal systems that will help you and to stay away f- and mitigate the risk of the ones uh, that won't. And there are different ways and we could drill down on each one but you have to be looking at it that way when you're investing in a company to scale the use of its IP globally, right? As an investment thesis would be called mm-hmm. IP capital or you're entering into an M&A. Again, each one of those elements um, can keep people honest. Uh, and again, I like to think that before the keys, I like to say that before the keys to the kingdom are handed, you better know you've got a deal. It better be pretty solid. Mm -hmm. You better have a very sophisticated legal protection uh, scheme that keeps people honest, that makes them think twice, right? Mm -hmm. Before breaking that deal now that they have the Mm know-how. So it's wait until the finish line. All the outer reasons for buying are there. You can see it in the world. You want to buy that business, go ahead and buy the business based on its economics. And once we know we have a deal, we can start to let maybe one person or a limited group Mm -hmm. have access. And then we're going to control what they look at, et cetera. Strong physical protection of what they look at, what kind of access, Uh, technology protection, which will help us better see who's, you know, what's going on, what people are doing when they're looking at this. And then third, the legal, the, uh, the, 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 the legal protections, right. Uh, Or physical protections that, Make sure nobody's walking out with anything that they've seen. And once you buy the business, you own it. Uh, I've gotten the reward for the business I built. And so that's how I think about it. Again, physical, legal, and technology. Use all three of those to protect what you have. And if it's an M&A, wait to the finish line
0: until you show the keys to the kingdom. Love it. So on to the sharing then, because I like. And as we kind of, uh, end probably with a bigger picture, like what, what can people do about this? I think it's uh, like, I go back to, and it's interesting. You're, we've talked about VC and a lot of these different things. And I think Peter Thiel just can, keeps coming to my mind for some of the, the, book zero to one, like going from zero to one is a son of a gun, right? Cause you invented something new where we've kind of I don't know, you, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have, but like, we've been chasing the same iterations. It seems like just different versions of the same ideas for the last 15 years, we're like, where are the new things? And we need more of the zero to one, which takes longer, which is the IEP. We need more things. I, I think it's, I think there's an encouragement we should all have to be chasing this idea. like that you're.
1: So, so you hit it on the head. So Mark Andreessen, uh, Andreessen Horowitz uh, after the dot-com bust. I, I born, love watching him on podcasts. Uh, or, or dot-com boom, I should say. And then bust was formed. Many funds were formed to go bet on companies because they knew the internet I could move everything onto the internet and access the world, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Smartphones grew that access right around the world from desktops. And so they realized that every business and every consumer needed, could use a software app for all the different things they do in their life. And you can create value from that, but your advantage, as we said, was not incremental. And to really move society and humanity forward, we need the physical technologies to grow and thrive and if we're not funding them, we're actually stunning our long-term growth. Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge. Our big companies don't invest in that long-term research and development that brings breakthroughs. It's easier to build the next iPhone today. 14 now, I think we're up to.
0: Yeah, it's got a slightly uh, where I know camera. what my
1: cash flows are going to look like. And I know people are going to well, how many people are going to buy it? I know, yeah, I'm going to know what I'm going to make. And that's an easier business. So we've moved from short-term investments and short-term gains that Wall Street can count on at a public company level that uh, on Wall Street uh, through the incentives, right? If one CEO is playing that game, you've got to play it because otherwise your economics don't look good and you're out, right? Your I know. job is threatened. And that's now pervaded um, uh, the venture capital market, moving to software. And by the way, there's a lot of good that came from all of that, but we've ignored building Things it's again. the balance,
0: right? And I think – I love how you put that. I love how you said that, Robert, because like I want to make sure that this, – this is what I'm hearing because I, I believe this and correct me if you don't, but like I, I think you are. It's like we need – a balance of VC for software, but we missed the hardware because like, I don't know if it's like the 0% interest rates for 14 years pushed so much money into VC into PE that like everybody was popping up a firm. And then they're all chasing similar ideas. They're not going from the zero to one that like a lot of these, like, so it's like, we just went, we're like oblong. We're like, we need more back to the stuff that you're talking about. And I think it's the same thing with the infrastructure of the U S right? Like we need bridges. And if we don't have bridges, people can't, an Amazon truck can't go across it to give it to someone else. And like, we're missing that. And like, it, what's interesting, Robert, I, 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 I can only imagine you're going to do very well because the, have you ever heard of the book makers and takers?
1: Uh, yes, I have actually.
0: Yeah. It's super fascinating. Finance went from like 0.9% of GDP to seven. And then like R&D for public companies went from like, what, 4% or something like that, a GDP down to like 0.5 or something like that. It's because they're not doing the things that you're talking about. Where did the
1: money go over 10 years after the financial crisis? Share buybacks were- (laughs) I know, dude. I know. Right? Reduced. And my earnings over a lot, you know, fewer shares create higher earnings per share, higher stock price. I know. Engineered, financially engineered growth basically is what happened.
0: I know, and like it's so. It's again, I and like there's this whole. We need to be able to have the duality into it. Like we need software VC, we need hardware VC. But like I, I mean, you think why is Apple on Apple iPhone 14 and it's still just a better camera? Is because they spent 300 billion on stock buybacks. They didn't make anything. Right. right. (laughs) But then there's people that need you and your capital and this philosophy to get like. To give themselves the encouragement to create the ip from to go from zero to one robert and like i think about how like so all of our clients that we work with the people that are listening and the people that Mm -hmm. see my workshops and vistage are like the backbone of america that i think of robert because they're like the couple million in revenue to a couple hundred million in revenue not backed by the professional investors And they have, I think, here's my thesis is that a lot of these people have IP that they haven't quantified as IP, whether it's software processes, machinery, hiring, whatever, and they just haven't gotten the playbook to do what you're talking about.
1: Well, right now they have equity capital and debt capital in the capital stack of every business. In the future, you'll have IP capital where you actually separate out and value what you've got and how that asset can create cash flows beyond the business. And it will change the way that young companies get funded. It will allow more companies to grow because the value, you're looking at not half the pie, the venture, the team, and the business plan, but the other half, right? That actually can create much more value than the venture itself, standalone, through many other ventures, right? If you're willing to share it in a controlled way. And and I'm going to make one more point. The country, this country was founded On an industrial base we built things planes trains
0: (laughs) oh people forget that don't they
1: (laughs) people do forget it and we created jobs for people we brought the world we freed the world from tyranny became a light that shines on the world literally a light that shines on the world a place where if you travel the world like i have freedom still reigns there's no question about it we take for granted what we have in this country often if we haven't experienced uh places in the world where that is not the case. Mm -hmm. And so that country began by just coming here from around the world with a whole bunch of entrepreneurs willing to create a better future for their children. I call it the immigrant mindset. Mm -hmm. We need to bring society back, our culture back from short-termism, short-term gains, short-term results everybody seems to be doing better yes. than me on social media right yeah we have this incentive to go do that zero to one to take yeah. that bet back to the immigrant mindset where i'm trying to actually be of service to my town my community my family building a better life thinking long-term long-term growth investing in breakthrough innovation that changes the way we make things build things I, that's what's I missing
0: I, you know it's so timely man like i uh... I'm a big audiobook guy, and I, uh, I don't know why I didn't. So, Think and Grow Rich. You read that decades ago, but I just stumbled across the one that they just published: Napoleon Hill uh, with Andrew Carnegie's 17 interviews called "How to Own Your Mind." I don't know if you've stumbled across that, Robert. I've seen Think and Grow Rich, uh,
1: which he yeah. actually hired that author to go talk to many of the wealthy people in the world to figure out what it was that allowed. They that did, to do it. yeah, yeah, yeah. And
0: so, like, so I haven't the, seen the, that though. The, the So, how to own your mind, like. Andrew Carnegie just beats into Napoleon Hill's mind. Creative vision is what created America. If you do not have a big purpose, creative vision, we're just floundering, and then you're going to want something from nothing. And I was just like, so fascinating. But what I think is so interesting, Robert, about this time is that what are the ways that we can encourage someone that, for example, maybe you have a $10 million home remodeling client that has figured out how to... uh, standardize their hiring process or someone on on their design Mm -hmm. phase, or you got some Mm -hmm. manufacturer that's figured out how to, you know, do their lean six sigma bending steel. I'm just making up random ideas here, but like, there are people that have companies that could like almost reassess what they're doing. Like, I think there's this process that I think is interesting, Robert, that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle to figure out what they're really good at, unless they ask someone from the outside. So, mm-hmm. I don't know—is there a process that you are familiar with of how to identify IP and then how to actually share it with a potential future ecosystem? Well, um, will you hit
1: me with a bunch of things in there. I'm going to go, but which is fine. You know, I, I I love it. I love I love talking about this stuff. So, what I'm going to say is um, to your something from nothing. So, I believe uh, that. Being an entrepreneur is something you're called to do, and we're all called to do something, however big or small it may be. And it starts by realizing when you're called, you feel that call, that pull, and do not allow fear to get in the way when you can feel it from the tips of your head to the top, from the tips of your toes to the top of your head, take that leap of faith, but faith is a really important element because I like to believe that there's a guiding hand we can't see with our eyes. I can't touch it, feel it. I can't prove it to you, but I can tell you stories one day, maybe on another show of kind of, was it dumb luck or divine intervention? I like Mm -hmm. to think it was divine intervention. So when you follow your calling and you let go of fear and those old habits of thought, and you believe in the principle of faith that there's something guiding you, You can realize, I like to believe, whatever it is that you choose to have in life. I like to believe we come to earth to live a lifetime and to create. And earth is about creating something out of nothing. And the only way to do that where you're called is by having faith and believing because you're being trained along the way to be worthy of what it is that you seek in life you came here, and the reward is actually in the ride. We always look back and wonder what's next, even though we were struggling to get to the top of the mountain. Once we're there, we wonder what's next. It's a surprising thing, right? I surprise, And so people need to realize that challenge goes hand in hand with that journey, that calling. And if you don't have faith and learn to fly when you can fly and when you can't, as Martin Luther King said, run. And when you can't run, you walk. And when you can't walk, you crawl. And somebody who sees that has a true calling, there's no plan B. And they feel so inspired by it. They keep moving forward because they see it as an adventure and they see the challenges as stepping stones to where they're headed, not roadblocks standing in the way.
0: I think it's the what you just laid out there. And it, it, you got that Napoleon Hill book, Robert, you would just eat it up. And the listeners and I I can't say enough about it. And it's so crazy that he was around 100 years ago. And I, I bring it back up because yeah, the, the phrase that I'm, I'm not, it's not mine. It's from him. It's like that is the way to a happy, fulfilled life. The journey, finding something that fulfilled that big that you can chase is what makes the whole thing fun because then you're never wondering when it's going to be over because you're enjoying the whole thing and this idea of going from zero to one and creating something that hasn't been there is what's going to give people a big enough thing to chase that it's not going to (laughs) stop
1: and then i'll give you another way i like to think that when one takes responsibility for themselves and listens to their calling they'll learn often In hindsight, looking back, as Steve Jobs said, he could see the dots connected that he couldn't see as he was moving forward. But looking back, there was Mm -hmm. a reason for everything in his life that got him from nothing to something, right? to use your phrase. Mm -hmm. I like to say that those who choose to take responsibility for themselves, which starts with following their calling when ready, uh, will live happy lives. And those who take responsibility for others will live blessed lives.
0: I like it a lot. Yeah. It kind of goes into your, and I know we're getting short on time here, but um, I think the the last concept I'd like to unpack uh, for a couple of minutes is to share with others and be responsible for others. I think that is a way of, uh, the way of being responsible for others is providing value to others of the IP mm-hmm. that you have created and are licensing to them. Right. What are ways that people can, maybe kind of just two things, going back to my probably fire shot of questions, but just when someone has a company and they want to look back and say, do I have IP here? what are right. some ways for them to think about what they might already have? And then when they look forward, what are some ways that they, th- like they, that they should think about how to expand that to the rest of the world?
1: Um, I would say that um, it's a tough question. I would say that value is what you look for. Uh, all great businesses are based, based on delivering value. So anything that helps you create that value Even a customer list, a community that you've built, uh, the proprietary manufacturing equipment you had to design to be able to build that widget. There's usually many, many elements that together create a value proposition and maybe in subsets create value. So there can be different aspects of what you've created you could license in different fields in different ways. Often technology that's truly breakthrough has disruptive effect in multiple markets, mm-hmm. right? And so there's different IP for each one of those markets, kind of like the chair. Yeah. I build a chair. It has a back of seat and four legs, and I can sit off the ground and And maybe over in some other, some other part of the world, there's another market where they want the rocking chair, right? Just to use a, a silly example. Yeah, yeah. And so there often are uh, but uh, different ways of using breakthrough innovation you wanna start with wherever it is that you're taking that innovation, the reason you created it in the first place, and think about where are you creating value, what's driving that value, and every aspect of that is your IP, every aspect. And then you wanna think about protecting it so you can go ahead and share it legally, physically, and through technology, Uh, and we can talk about each one of those elements, but one thing that I'd like to point out is that you need a system wherever you have those rights, and you want to hold your IP that will protect that IP asset pool that you're sharing. You want a system that has strong property rights. And when Ronald Reagan became president, he created uh, an appellate court called the Federal Circuit. And he realized having all these different courts around the country decide what property rights were valid and infringed or violated, and different laws depending on the culture in that particular community was getting in the way of progress. He created this appellate court called the Federal Circuit and they began 30 years of pro-patent protection, pro-trade secret protection, pro-property right protection. You probably don't know this, but the American Invents Act that Obama enacted, while great for crowdfunding to help young companies grow, mostly software companies, was not very good for hardware companies building something based on breakthrough innovation because it created what's called an IPR process, uh, Interparte's Review. It's just a fancy name for being able to go back to the patent office and say to the government as the defendant who has stolen or violated your rights, I don't believe these rights should have been granted in the first place. I think you got it wrong. This country's constitution actually in it says that the property rights of individuals need to be respected. It's in our constitution. It's one of the founding fathers' big deals. They put that in there because uh, an individual had no opportunity outside this country till it was founded. And we've weakened our property rights protection in this system. Big tech has driven a lot of that. Uh, change that created what is called the American Vents Act. Again, crowdfunding, great thing, new way to bring the people into growing the companies online, online funding. But the not so good was this Mm -hmm. process of basically saying that my government doesn't get it right and I can go back over and over again to get them to challenge it. And if I'm somebody with something breakthrough and I'm David, not Goliath, I have a real problem on my hands because it's more efficient to steal, and have David figure out how to chase me. Because in the end, he's either going to lose; he won't be able to chase me in the first place. And when he does, I'll pay him trinkets on the dollar, and he'll be happy to some degree. But the opportunity for the nation of building a new business is gone, and that's well, I what was, I, yeah, like
0: I, I was going to say, man. Like I, uh, the whole point. Is to give the investors confidence that if this takes 10 to 15 years, we've got the time as long as we've got the capital. And you just entered doubt into the equation, which doubt and investment theses don't really work out very well. So it just hampers innovation all over.
1: Well, so, so that's why we talk about you want somebody super skilled at how do I protect? Because you can still protect and share Physical, legal, and technology, right? Uh, technology it you you, you
0: mentioned, You've mentioned a couple of times, you, if you want to unpack a couple of those, you can. Oh, yeah, yeah. You. so
1: technology can be AI uh, and sensors on the manufacturing line that actually don't allow anybody except somebody with the secret key to see the recipe that is uh, making the product or see the design. You cloak that, right? It's very important. Very limited access to the keys to the kingdom. Build half of whatever it is, half the cake here, and ship the major ingredients and somebody can assemble the rest. So that's the second way to do it. Uh, Physical lock and key right practices that protect who gets access physically into uh, your facility to watch and and learn. Or you can learn and watch just by seeing what's happening. That could be a problem. Uh, And then legal strategy. So that's why I like to say that if you can keep it secret, you keep it secret. Because uh, protecting it with patents, you're sharing that knowledge with the world. And um, you get those patent rights uh, to protect things that people could can easily replicate by looking at your product and reverse engineering your product. I like Mickey
0: Mouse, didn't Mickey Mouse and Donald Ducker, all those are coming up for either their they're lapsing or like a hundred years or whatever, that, whatever it was. Oh,
1: right. Right. There you go. Right. It will lapse, right. That's copyright. So that's, you get much longer for patents. You get 20 years from filing 10 years for breakthrough is what it takes. Even a new drug to actually get to market. And then you got 10 years to reap the benefits of the market in the drug space. The law actually gives you a five-year monopoly uh, because of the capital has to go into finding a new drug. In the technology space, they don't. So you want that, you want that long development timeline, long capital, uh, large capital requirements as a de facto barrier to entry. So you're looking for breakthrough innovations that have high barriers to entry, which is another way to protect, long lead times to develop and copy, a lot of capital that somebody has to risk in doing it. And then the legal rights, patent rights, understanding where you can protect, where to get patents. There's a whole strategy Around using patents, so they're actually an effective tool that gets around the challenges. I highlighted the challenges because somebody who's an IP investor wants the strongest property rights for this country that this country can have, because this is the only empire, I believe, that was built in the world, not on taking the land and resources of others for millennia, but built on creativity by freeing the world from tyranny, bringing them to a place where freedom reigns and where they could be as creative as they wanted. And we built the empire by creating innovations, planes, trains, automobiles again that nobody else had and sharing that technology with the world. People don't realize that by sharing with the world and opening up countries around the world to democracy and to access to their markets, we not only lifted up their markets, But we also created a consumer audience that could buy our goods. And so Warren Buffett likes to say it wasn't genius. It was riding on the American tailwinds. And we need those tailwinds to continue or
0: trouble is coming. I love it, Robert. That was so (laughs) – I I just – I echo everything. I just – so well-spoken, so well-said. Yeah. Um, I want to end with your – IP capital model again, because I think we covered a lot of ground and gave a lot of context. Now, if we think about someone's got a a business or cash flowing Mm -hmm. business, the venture, as you talked about, the people, the business plan, the cash flow, and then this IP, and let's say they don't have enough capital to take that IP and do everything that we're talking about. So how do you fit the gap? compared to what was the typical model where they kind of sell the whole, they look at everything at once. Yeah, and I, I know I'm asking you to repeat, but I think there's a lot of context. Oh uh, yeah, no, got I can
1: cover it again. And I, you know, I'm going to use venture capital versus IP capital. So if I value the venture, it's the cash flows that get created from the use of that asset, that IP property, the technology, uh, and I'm going to value that business. If I don't separate out and think of that property, that intangible, well, it's, it's not just intangible, it's physical. It's mm-hmm. your new manufacturing mm-hmm. equipment, know-how, product designs, et cetera, customer lists, all that it took to create that value that in the end is the reason that somebody wants to invest in the venture. But you don't want to just limit yourself to the cash flow stream of the venture and value it on that cash flow stream. You want somebody that can come in and invest in your business and help you think about how do I think of my IP assets as a property, like a piece of real property, how do I go share that property because it's not fixed in one place with other ventures, other teams, either through pure licensing or joint venture partnerships, and have from the one venture with one cash flow stream, many ventures and many cash flow streams. So when we come in, we shift the way you think of a startup or an emerging company, and we look at the value in two ways. That is the fundamental way that you change the venture capital model. So that works well. We're not so well because the incremental change require it makes it so easy for competitors to show up and eat your lunch. But that model works in software where the capital requirements are low and the valuation is uh, early on when they're growing isn't essentially as a denominator with the capital going in as the numerator, going to take away most of the equity, right? So so you can get them started. If you go over to the hardware land, you need to start to separate the IP value from the venture value. It's the only way not to take away the equity that makes that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow possible for the guys that are going to go for years with nothing. People don't realize they hold all this value, but they can't liquidate it, right? It's paper value. And, and so that's where we start and we say, wow, if we can do that, we can take a lot less equity, half or less. Number one,
0: which is we can different. now
1: create a revenue stream that isn't just profits from the venture, but a toll on revenue from the other ventures that are being licensed. So I have two ways. I've got a cash flow stream, right? A sharing a revenue that pays investors to wait, I've got an asset with a lot more value than the venture alone because there's many other streams, so I don't have to take the kind of equity away from an entrepreneur so they can now build their business. So they're able to realize their dream. The investor is seeing a lower risk profile with many cash flow streams built around many different teams making money, and he's getting paid to wait. He's no longer forcing the entrepreneur to prematurely exit, sell the company, go public, the entrepreneur can control his own destiny. And so we think, again, of a venture as not just a venture, but an IP property. And we've moved the model to something like a real property where you're getting paid for the use of the property by many others. You're de-risking in that way. And you're allowing the entrepreneur to own much more of the business. And you're allowing the entrepreneur, because you, as an investor, are being paid to wait, to actually control the timing and the direction of his destiny. So we think it's a game changer, uh, IP capital uh, versus uh, venture capital. And then finally, instead of assuming lots and lots of losses, which is what they assume, which also drives up equity, I've got to get a home run out of one company to make up for all the other losses. When we bet on these kinds of breakthrough innovations, if you can properly protect them and create these multiple cash cash flow Mm streams, multiple ventures, you actually have not just uh, de-risk by multiple ventures and de-risk by getting a share of revenue instead of waiting for the lottery ticket at the end, right? But you have a third way. That asset pool will have value, so you can underwrite that asset. It becomes the backstop, a further reason you don't have to take as much equity because you're not trying to make up for an assumed model that says, I'm going to lose most of my bets, you're not going to lose most of your bets because you don't bet on something that doesn't have intrinsic value that somebody else would buy and pay for to get your capital back. Hopefully, that helps kind of give oh, you the. No, it,
0: Robert, it was perfect. It was perfect because it just like I, our whole conversation gave context to why it now works. And I'll end kind of my thoughts on this is like I, I I'm in a, a junkie for incentive alignment. I, that's why I kept holding conscious camp. A yeah. I'm, up. I'm like, yeah. and why I've dove so much into macroeconomics and monetary policy and all this stuff, because it just, the alignment of incentive, what what I'm hearing, you're releasing the shackles of the incorrect el, uh, incentives that have hampered growth. And we want Correct. to release the creative visionaries of the entrepreneurial spirit to go from zero to one.
1: <laughs> that's it. I'm breaking the the chains that bind that creativity that binds you, that holds you back. And there's more than the model, you know. I like to say, as I said before, we really need to have a push in the country, strong property rights, in a, which is part of a cultural shift, to realize that if we want to keep the good thing going that we created over the past 200 years with new breakthrough innovations that make new things, build new things, and help the world, help humanity, uh, and reap the benefits of the value we create around the world, we need to have strong property rights number one. Number two, we need to bring back investors, this is what I'm doing, into the hardware space, into the physical space. Um, and we already hear about it. We need to bring manufacturing back just as a national security issue. Well, what about all, those are the big companies coming home, right? Yeah, right. And we need the little growth, we need the new growth, the new forest, right? If we stunt the growth of the other half of the equation, the brand new breakthrough game changing hardware innovations that allow us to do things differently more productively in ways that were not
0: possible just like the plane the train yeah. the automobile think about the commerce well i mean i could name uh, you get the nuclear fusion you got nuclear fusion, the uh, the quantum computer. I mean, we got mo- plenty of things we need to tackle.
1: <laughs> oh, right. Uh, uh, you know, maglev trains. Uh, there's all kinds of trains that could move people from one place to another. People don't realize e- even the highway system in America was an innovation that allowed communities to now trade. Talk. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> even the Internet has that, right? Uh, communities can now trade anywhere in the world. But if we're ignoring the physical side of the house, we're ignoring a big piece of the reason that we're prosperous. And if the rest of the world holds the manufacturing base and the rest of the world is innovating in an environment where they have access to that manufacturing know-how, they have a huge advantage. And so what you're seeing is just like a great basketball team, it's challenging you as another great basketball team for talent, right? And so we're not funding our hardware companies, right? Because we've moved our manufacturing overseas. It's very expensive to build that infrastructure for a young company. Where do you think the talent is going to find the money and the know-how and the partners?
0: Right, well, I, I think to go through this, it? Robert. we like, are if If we don't get our, you know what, together, we are gonna be the ones paying a license from someone else instead of us charging someone else. <laughs>
1: No, exactly. And and the reality is, is, uh, again, I'm going to go back to my principle that by creating value for others, we create value for ourselves. And the more value we can create for others, the more value we can create for ourselves, our nation, our families. And we want to realize that when we go license others and give them access to what we invested in with high risk capital, because we have a culture that's built on being entrepreneurial, just coming here was a courageous act, right? 200 years ago. That culture, that immigrant mindset, we need to reinstantiate it. We need to instill it over social media into the very fabric of our nation. Our nation needs to understand we need to go long, not short. We need to have an immigrant mindset, not what's in it for me now, an instant gratification mindset. Something for nothing. (laughs) Right. and, And we need to help these young hardware companies stay home. And We need to recognize by doing it, we're not just going to help ourselves. We're going to go do what we did for 200 years. We're going to share those innovations. And people all around the world live better lives because of all that innovation. And yes, they are competitors today. Well, what's wrong with a competitor? Why should I, because I reap the benefits of sharing and created opportunity for myself, why should I deny another basketball team the right to compete? What it means is that we got to go long again, we can't run short because we've got guys that are going long all around the world that didn't exist 20 years ago.
0: And I'll add an analogy and then we'll wrap up is the yeah. point of a pickup basketball game is to keep playing, not to not to win.
1: Oh, interesting. Yes. Yes. That's, That's a the great journey, one.
0: right? Yes. And, the moment, and so we need competition because if we don't have the competition, we're just sitting there by ourselves and who cares? <laughs>
1: Exactly. And you know, there are examples uh, like NVIDIA with the DPU and the GPU data processing unit is a new chip in the cloud, a DPU that they use to do all the post office work. When you're doing AI, you need billions of data points. You needed a new chip. That new chip in the cloud, along with NVIDIA's uh, GPU, is going to replace all the CPUs and servers in every data center with GPUs to do all the AI machine learning. And DPUs to suck in the fire hose of data in billions of bits per second wow. are being trained. You're training an intelligent model to become smarter and smarter at billions of data points per second. CPUs and software running on CPUs in these data centers can't do it. So, NVIDIA is a great example. And I don't think, I think I heard the, the number from uh, the CEO, Jensen Wong. Uh, a wang of um, 300, maybe $300 billion over 30 years invested in creating the foundations for what will be the new data centers in the world that will, in software. Without that hardware, there would not be this AI software. Every piece of software will now have an AI engine behind it to make it smarter and more productive. So every business will be able to do more. And every consumer will have access to much more than they have today. And then I'll add on one note, one thing that uh, really is important to realize that a lot of the hardware innovations are all around sustainable technologies. Believe it or not, enormous demand uh, in the world to go green. And green is no longer good for the environment, just good for the environment. It's good for people too and for businesses. So if you're a capitalist, You want to have the best of both worlds. If the market is there and people are willing to pay a premium for it, we'll invest in sustainable technologies. That's spawned in every industry. Technologies to decarbonize our industries, pollute our water streams, and then circularity, reuse their waste in ways like... The the junkyard where I can buy it for pennies on the dollar, turn it back into brand new and sell it for the same price. What a a great business, right? Look at the profits and something like that. So people don't realize that green is a revolution in and of itself driving the hardware side of the house in the same way that AI is driving the software side of the house. And they will go hand in hand because I become, if you think about it, AI is another innovation that drives sustainability. If AI comes into the picture, I can do things with less resources, more efficiently, and that's just sustainability. So all this climate change we hear about, all this, you know, focus on green is now becoming an economic value proposition that makes sense for people, businesses, investors to invest in. And the kind of the residual of that is we're gonna help the world. We're going to help humanity, and and another reason we need to pay attention to the physical side of the house.
0: So, Robert, this has been a blast. I have uh, learned a lot, and um, it's very fun hearing your philosophy and what I grab on to for core principles be highly aligned. Um, two last questions for you. Sure. Um, The first one is I ask people what the word intentional means for them because it's the name of the show and I've heard a lot of very fun uh, answers to it. So I'm just kind of curious, what does the word intentional mean for you? Intentional growth uh,
1: means that
0: you actually
1: have a vision and a plan to execute on that vision and you're not just uh, hacking at it. Uh, And that starts with having a calling as we talked about letting go of the old to let the new in and having faith and recognizing that that intention has to be matched with faith that says, this is an adventure. Happiness is in the ride. The more value I can deliver to others, the more blessed my life will be, not just happy. And people need to realize that that faith goes hand in hand with seeing The challenges along the way that will train you to get where you are uh, as stepping stones to where you're headed, not roadblocks. I call that all intention. To me, intention and faith kind of go hand in hand. Intention has to be faith. Without it, it's really hard to build a business. Don't even start if you don't have that kind of intention. Otherwise, you're just going from one to two instead of from zero to one, right? (laughs) Correct. Correct. No, you absolutely do. People have no idea. I can tell you uh, personally and then seeing it in my own life, there, there is no easy road from zero to one. People, There's no road, right? It hasn't
0: been done yet.
1: <laughs> right, and, and the world resists change, right? Think uh-huh. about it. Yeah, uh-huh. Nobody wants new and you need that tipping point. But from the beginning to that tipping point is quite a journey. And if you don't have the courage and the emotional constitution and the belief That you've been called to do this, it's very, very hard to be successful because
0: it will be no walk in the park, for sure. Amen to that, my friend. Last question is, where can everybody find you if they want to reach out and get in touch? Well,
1: a couple of places, uh, Cody Capital,
0: Capital C-O-T-E-Capital.com. You can
1: go there to learn more about what we're doing. Uh, Our investments are focused on products uh, based on deep science and engineering that deliver breakthrough innovation, again, the hardware side of the house, the physical side of the house with a new model, as we've talked about, to kind of inspire not only more of what I do, but bring venture capital back to where it started in the first place. Our country needs it. Uh, We need it. Um, Without it, uh, we will be challenged. There's too much competition in the world. So you can go and learn more about it. You can join my mission. Uh, We have an IP Capital Fund that we'll be launching in the fall. Uh, And everything I'm focused on is heavily focused on things that will be a benefit to humanity, Uh, food, medicine, energy, clothing, housing. Uh, You'd be shocked at how many innovations can change the game uh, and how many startups are trying to solve uh, these problems that not only create a great economic opportunity that's been ignored for too long, but actually help humanity. Uh, And with it, help the environment. Uh, We get the best of all worlds. And that's what I like about what I'm doing. And if you want to learn about my background a little bit more, you can also go to my LinkedIn profile, Robert Cody, uh, LinkedIn, search it in Google, you will find me. And I've got some videos. uh, I recently did a Bloomberg uh, video on talking about it and some others about why I started uh, 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 this mission. And I want people to realize that I am an entrepreneur too. I know everybody's pain. I live it myself day to day, going from zero to one, moving the world from venture capital and digital or software back to a new kind of venture capital called IP capital. And I can tell you, it's been no walk in the park. I feel everybody's pain. And I come with a humility and a desire to want to help uh, that I think is really, really important uh, to bringing the kind of change that I believe is possible. So
0: I support it and I love it. Robert, this has been an absolute blast. Uh, I I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you coming on the show. You're welcome. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I loved how much I learned. I love how innovative Robert and IP Capital, his concept is. And I'm super excited to watch how it does exactly what we were talking about at the end of the podcast, which is release the creative vision of American entrepreneurs. We need more of that, and I don't know if we need another productivity to-do app. <laughs> like, I mean, let's let's create something new and innovative. And I hope that uh, Robert is uh, shaking the trees of the ideas of the American entrepreneur and aligning capital with ideas to make everybody's life better. And if there was one takeaway, I would say is that the valuation methodologies and understanding valuation is crucial because how do you know what you're think how to think about valuations unless you truly understand cash flowing valuations compared to strategic market valuations and then how ip capital fits into that so my recommendation would be as i've said multiple times already in this episode check out the intentional growth starter kit book your discovery call and in that discovery call if you're interested in a a complimentary financial assessment for your business we will then give you access to the Intentional Growth Academy complimentary if we decide to move forward with that complimentary assessment. So go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit. Worst case scenario, you're going to watch me and the case study projecting out the future value of a company using a company financials. So you'll learn a lot, but you also have the opportunity to get a complimentary financial assessment if you schedule that discovery call. So I appreciate you tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week.